0: This week on Art in the Air, our entire show features Chicago-based Bobby Tollemine, who shares his over 45-year storied career of photographing some of the world's top rock music acts while befriending many of them along the way. Our spotlight is on the October-November exhibit featuring papermaker, printer, artist Amos Paul Kennedy Jr., opening October 3rd at the Chesterton Arts Center.
1: Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Mary, art on the air today. Stay in the know with Mary and Esther, art on the air our way. Express yourself, you heart, and show the world your heart. Express yourself, you
0: and show the world your heart. Welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and WVLP 103.1 FM. Our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City.
2: Aloha, everyone.
0: We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art of the Air is heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP, 103.1 FM, streaming at wvlp.org. And every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicradio.org and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Radio. Information about Art on the Air is available on our website, breck.com AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our shows are available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for more information about upcoming shows and interviews. We'd like to welcome back to Art in the Air Spotlight from the Chesterton Arts Center. She's the executive director, president, and runs the whole organization, Hannah Hammond-Hagman. How are you doing there?
3: I'm doing okay. well. It's always good to see you both. Thanks. Well, uh, hi.
0: we have a lot of things going on, but I know you'd like to talk about your October-November exhibit, plus some other things going on. So tell us yes. what's happening.
3: So we have a fabulous exhibit coming up um, October through November. It's very exciting for us. Um We have two gallery spaces and in our lower gallery space, we're gonna be featuring an installation of letterpress print posters by Detroit-based letterpress artist, Amos Paul Kennedy Jr. This is gonna be a fantastic exhibit. His posters are gonna completely cover the walls of our galleries. Um, The way he works a letterpress is very innovative um, and very um, painterly, almost. So he uses um, calls to action for social and environmental justice. So There's language that's reprinted over and over again with different color fields. So the posters themselves become super, very rich. Um, And so those will be covering the walls, and then the whole upper gallery of our space will be um, about 23 different regional and Chicago-based artists that are using zines, um, also printing or illustrating um, various pieces that are using um, language as well. So all of the artists have that in common, and that we're using text and language um, to kind of talk about culture in general. (laughs) But also I think what's really great about these pieces is how accessible they all are. Um, They're ready-mades or they're DIY published pieces in terms of the zines that are being made or the comic books too that'll be here. Um, And part of the exhibit is going to also be a pop-up shop of some of the artists that are involved. So there'll be uh, multiples um, for sale as well. But yeah, we're really excited to have um, a huge array of um, kind of printed material culture um, in the galleries for those two months. And there will be a big artist reception on October 8th. That's a Saturday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. here. And then Amos will also be doing an artist talk on Saturday, November 5th at 11. Both those events are free, of course, and open to the public. And we look forward to having everybody here. How did you
2: come in contact with um, Amos? It's a
3: great question. So I've been aware of his work for a long time and I'm kind of like a, a very secret fan. Right. So I've been following him on Instagram. And I think that what he does is glorious and relevant and very poignant And there is a letterpress printer amongst our myths here in the region named um, Terrence Chenard out of Miller, out of Gary. And um, he and I were talking at one point and we we were sharing a love of Amos and Terry was like, oh, I know him. (laughs) Do you want me to connect you guys? And it was brilliant. And I love it when things kind of happen like that here.
0: Now it seems like you're also having much more like artist talk now with your exhibits, where you're having people in. I know you just ah. had that with uh, your past exhibits, so is, and that's going to be a trend. You think generally you're going to start doing, especially with an artist like this.
3: Absolutely. Whenever we can do it, I think it's a really important component of being an art center and exhibiting artists is that you make those artists accessible to the public. Because um, I think that any time that we have the opportunity to hear directly from the artist and learn about their intent or their practice, it can really make the works come to life. Yeah, it's had, more enriching. Like, it's way more enriching and certainly as an education Um, educational piece to the exhibit, we always really love to have the artists involved um, whenever we can. So absolutely, as as long as we're able to do that. And for this exhibit, um, which is called Mark My Words, is the exhibit of Amos and all the other regional artists. Um, And it will run October 3rd through November 29th. Um, But we were also grateful to for the partnership of Valparaiso University to make this exhibit happen. And so part of what will happen is when Amos is here with us in northwest Indiana, um, he's going to be giving a talk over at VU campus as well.
0: Very good. What's well, some other things you have coming up? I know. Well, I know you can talk briefly about your December exhibit, which uh, is kind of exciting and some other Always. things that are happening there at the yeah. uh, center.
3: Sure. So our December exhibit um, will be our annual CAC members exhibit where we invite all of our talented artist members of the center to submit works. Um, And that will be on display for six weeks through mid-January. We have a whole list of beautiful fall classes and workshops that are opening for artists of all ages and registrations open for all of that. And as always, scholarships are available um to make those classes accessible to anybody who's interested Um, we're working with a number of new community partners for various outreach programs we'll be out at meadowbrook at the shirley hines um, meadowbrook space on the 24th of september so yeah we're looking forward to doing all kinds of new partnerships too this fall
0: and so um in, into the next uh, year now I, I think uh, yeah. as a way of you know, we moved the gala to uh, springtime but and we had a fairly successful um, art fair except we got yeah. rained on half day but uh, oh
3: you know we can't control the weather but yeah it was a beautiful <laughs> weekend regardless yeah <laughs>
0: So what else do we have beyond uh, January for uh, exhibits? we uh, Have you got planned? Because I know you're planning way far ahead now and for we longer so exhibits. so our
3: calendar is looking um, at least a year ahead because that way we can um, program and market around those exhibits. So in January, look for a new partnership with the National Park um, that we'll be working with them to put on an exhibit, a small survey of their artists in residency program, as well as an unveiling of all the 2022 artists in residence for the National Park for Dunes. Um, And then we roll into our fabulous annual exhibit of all the Chesterton Public School artists um, in March, which is always a nice full house. So, yeah, rolling into 2023, there's no hesitation. (laughs) We'll keep going and building. And we certainly hope to see everybody out here.
0: Well, you've done a lot in your first year there as the executive Uh director of president, So bringing a lot of things. So uh, in the last uh, 30 seconds here, tell us again about the exhibit that's coming up for October, November.
3: Brilliant. So the exhibit is called Mark My Words. It highlights the letterpress um, posters of Amos Paul Kennedy Jr., a letterpress artist out of Detroit, as well as over 23 fabulous regional and Chicago-based zinesters, comic book artists, illustrators, and printers. Um, Opening receptions on the 8th of October, 11 to 2. See you all then.
0: Sounds great. Thanks for coming on Art in the Air Spotlight. Hannah Hammond-Hagman, appreciate you coming on the show.
2: Very exciting. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. This is Pledge Week for your public radio station. And Art on the Air encourages our loyal listeners to support this station by making a monthly sustaining pledge so we may continue to bring you this great program.
2: We are pleased to welcome Bobby Talman to Art on the Air. Bobby is one of the most prolific rock and roll photographers in the world and is regularly published in leading national and international newspapers, magazines, and has been included in numerous books and exhibitions. Bobby creates provocative and electrifying images of top-class musicians since 1977. Looking at his images, you are right there, feeling the concert or event. His amazing eyes, both of them, technical skills and experience, produce rich compositions capturing split-second moments with complete artistry. Bobby is also a talented writer. Read his descriptions of some of the concerts and be captivated. Thank you, Bobby, for joining Larry and I on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome. It is so brilliant to see you
4: nice to see you too esther and you too larry
0: well thank you for coming on the show well we'd like to our audience to find out a little bit about you and so i always like to say for your origin story how you got from where you were to where you are now so tell us about yourself bobby
4: um grew up in the north shore of chicago uh lincolnshire um just west of Deerfield and lake forest and that's where before high school um i uh It's hard. (laughs) There's multiple pivots to that question in regards to my belief in my beauty of trying to figure out photography and wanting to attempt to conquer this beast. But suffice it to say, a story I never really bring up ever, but that kind of fits the bill of the whole thing was um, my uh, older sister Hollis had a, um, she was artistic as well. And she saw what I was doing with my photography and was blown away by the uniqueness of it. And this would have to be when I was like 11 or 12 years old, I think. And she entered me into a, without my knowledge, uh, in Lincolnshire, they, in the summer, they have a, a, festival around July 4th, but there's an arts part of it too. That, And she uh, made like 10, five by seven and eight by 10 photos of some of the patternry that I, that's how I got my start with in photography, was as much as I love music. It was patterns and, and composition with patterns, ferns, uh, bark on a tree, uh, uh, grocery carts at the grocery store. Patterns, 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 wheels. You you name it. So that was what the photos consisted of. And I and I won. I won the gold prize. Yeah, but unbeknownst to me, besides winning that, was it was adults only. It had to be above, <laughs> it had to be
1: above,
4: <laughs> it had to be above the age of twenty one. And uh, here's this eleven year old kid who wins the thing, and it was a big brouhaha with my family and arguing with my sister. And yet, well, you know, forever grateful for Hollis even doing that and me going up on the podium. And obviously, I'm not twenty one. <laughs> how old was How old was Hollis at the time she entered you? Five years older than me. Six, I think maybe seventeen, maybe just finishing wow. up high school. What a great um, sister. <laughs> yeah. But what struck me in regards to this chronological order was back in the day in print, uh, Rolling Stone obviously being one of the major journals, but it wasn't really much of a live photography kind of publication, more into the writing. Gonzo writing in particular back then with uh, Hunter S. Thompson and, and being the main focal point and Jan S. Wenner, the publisher, also doing some occasional writing. The two publications that really popped that stopped me in my tracks and hit me in the gut uh, were Circus Magazine in particular and then Cream. And Cream was based out of Detroit, which was more renegade even then because they were into the MC5 and real dark, sinister, brutal, not Bob Seger kind of music. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, MC5 was like... <laughs> And they, you would say Iggy Pop too back then. That's the stuff they love to cover. You know, these are Detroit based Detroit based bands that really would pummel, pummel you and punish you. And then you have Circus that was more of the regal of the two, and they were more into the UK. Uh, you know, artists like Led Zeppelin and the West Coast stuff. Be uh, Fleetwood Mac was prime back then. Deep Purple, all those kind of bands. But the one picture that to this day I get chills telling anybody about was Jimmy Page with the double neck guitar on, I think uh, it was before Presence, whatever, House of the Holy Tour. And he was in his opium suits. He'd have two of them. One was white and the other would be black. He'd switch so the other one can get clean for the following performance, you know, dry clean, whatever. But that picture was crisp and it was beautiful, like nothing I've ever seen before. And I investigated when I bought the publication and found out it's a photographer from the West Coast, uh, Neil Preston. I was fixated on this guy, Neil Preston. What's he all about? How how did how does he how does he do that? Right. And there are no answers to that question. You're a young kid. Don't even attempt to ask a fellow photographer that's professional. That they'll 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 shout you out of the room. I tried, and I failed <laughs> at that. So okay. <laughs> I was at the, I was at Zeppelin at uh, the Physical Graffiti tour. I had my camera. I got up to the front of the stage. Believe it or not, this is before passes and uh, protocol. First three songs, no flash. Vacate the venue. This is back when if you had a camera, you got they would tolerate it to some extent. And lo and behold, Neil Preston was there. And I found out that Neil Preston was the tour photographer for 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 Led Zeppelin. Didn't even want to bother him. I've already attempted that and found that that was a failure. But outside of being four feet away from Jimmy Page. I'm and Robert Plant front and center. I'm looking, I'm to what is Neil, what's Neil doing in this attache case? And it was Nikon cameras, 36 rolls of film, about 12 different lenses. And I'm writing this all down and I'm realizing that, you know, if you want to pursue this, Bobby, um, is this ain't going to be cheap. <laughs> right. It's, it's this is top of the line Nikon stuff. And OK, but at least now I know that I failed coming into this Led Zeppelin show. Uh, these shows are three hours long with no intermissions. And I got three rolls of film. How are you going to how are you going to how is this going to work? I'm out of film after the first song for crying out loud, but I'm faking it. I'm faking it being up there, snapping away, even though technically the film is already in its role. And I'm watching Neil and what's Neil doing with flipping lenses and multiple cameras and things of that nature. So that's how I spent the first Seven songs of that Led Zeppelin show was learning what equipment to use, how to pursue this, what are the best angles, what are you looking for, anticipating. It was all, I was the best learning session with the best photographer in the world at the time. Just, it was like a YouTube tutorial. Right. Watching <laughs> how exciting. Approach. Yeah, the whole works. And that's how it started. Although I didn't pursue it. I was, you know, graduating from, from high school with a degree. Uh, you know, with your with your graduate uh, diploma and not really not knowing what I wanted to do with my life, to be honest. I went up to a University of Wisconsin and pursued mediocre, safe kind of what I thought would be to graduate.
2: <laughs> so, Bobby, though, in yeah. high school, was there photo class in high school?
4: And yeah, I didn't like, even did... do that then, though, was oh. not involved at all. Um, didn't even again, it was I'm a I'm a slow learner to like to that kind of stuff. You know, by the time I got to become a junior, I realized I had some physical abilities as far as sports, but it was already getting kind of too late to, you know, all of that, including photography. It's kind of like a slow to the curve and lights click. It doesn't hit me automatically. It's like 20 million questions and try to figure out a few of them, and then maybe that'll be decent. My mom saw in me with that winning of that uh, gold prize, That photography would be a good pursuit and and insisted I try, she would pay for it to go to the Rochester Institute of Technology, of all things. Wow. Heavy, heavy hitter of a school. That's up there with Columbia College, if you think about it. And yeah, we drove out there. And I got, I I actually, I was through all the the work that my mom had put in, I was going to get a scholarship in it. But I I don't know what, I don't, my mom has since passed. We'd have to have a sit down and a powwow. What's wrong with her son not wanting to take that opportunity? That's why I ended up at University of Wisconsin. I thought that would be something safe and it wouldn't be as competitive. I think that was also part of it. I can see the intimidating factor of being on the East Coast, even at that weekend jaunt, that I didn't have the equipment. I didn't have the appearance. I didn't look like a guy that was an ultra- connected and wealthy from the east coast going to one of the best schools in the country as far as photography I kind of wilted under pressure believe it or not that was part of the reason why I pivoted to the University of Wisconsin I think although I mean also
2: yeah it also just might be that you know you like you had just stated that you were it wasn't like a passion since you were five years old you know so I yeah so but you're in Wisconsin
4: yeah and then I You know, I get my degree in uh, marketing and then I come back home and I don't use it. I end up (laughs) I end up back at home figuring out now what I want to do. This is a 1981, I think, when I pivoted back to Lincoln. By by this time, my mom had had uh, had moved to Northbrook and that's where we resided from. Then I found out about this record store. This is where everything changed, by the way. Um, you know, you have to work. My mom doesn't want me to sit around and pout, mope around the house. So Wax Tracks Records had just moved there, uh, which was a cool record store in Lincoln Park at the corner of Lincoln and Fullerton.
2: So cool. Right
4: next to the biograph. Unique, although I'm familiar with all the record stores up and down the shore because I have friends that are into music like me. This is the store that's the pinnacle of cool. Uh, it was a store that embraced misfits, people that were out of touch, but you, you would get you would get dentists and pharmaceutical people in that would look sophisticated. Then you get the guy with the mohawk right next to you looking at the same thing as far as a rancid record. or whatever. You know, <laughs> everything about it was so cool in regards to that welcoming thing. What clicked for me was the boutique, which is really not known about. You know, the record store was the first floor run by Jim and Danny, Jim Nash and Danny Flesher. God bless those two. The second floor was the fashion boutique, but they also had UK publications that were out of touch with Chicago, New Musical Express and uh, Melody Maker, which were considered the hierarchy of UK cool and what's cool in the UK and not coming to the the United States yet. And it hit me, now again, this is some years from 81, though, getting acclimated to wax tracks and what they're all about. They also started a record label and a genre of music which became world-renowned, industrial music, it started there. Although industrial bands existed all over the world, but they would, they weren't conglomerated now in one place like Chicago was back then. Ministry, Lead Into Gold, Palehead, uh, Nine Inch Nails actually got its start there, Revolting Seas, I don't wanna say the last word for, but you get the drift. And uh, yes. Ministry, <laughs> all of these bands got, they and through a cool cult. My life with the through a cool cult. These guys would work at the record store and they have these bands. And Jim and Danny would help produce and put them out. And they started Wax Tracks Records from the record store. But the second floor of the boutique, as much as I was involved with the industrial music from the get-go, the second floor is what really pivoted me as far as coolness, as far as my passion. If you want to do this and you got a degree that you're not using and you think photography is it, let's investigate. So after seeing these, these are weekly expensive publications, by the way. That are, that are flying into wax tracks of all places. Every Friday is when I would go in and go up to the boutique and spend an hour reviewing. And there was one cover that hit it for me as far as to start this. It was Jesus and the Mary Chain, the album Psycho Candy had just come out, which at the time was galvanizing. And when it was, I think it was released in March of whatever year, 85 maybe would be the time frame. And it was already considered best album of the year is what it said on the, on the cover. Album band of the year, end of story. Like we have April, May, June, July, August, September. We have all these months and they're already claiming this band (laughs) to be number one for the entire year. What's going on? So, okay, let's make it, let's figure out Jesus and the Mary Chain and the Reed brothers from Scotland a little bit. Next thing I know, they're coming to Chicago. They play the Metro. Now I'm in. Okay, I get my camera gear. Didn't realize about photo passes. They still run on the fence with that. I'm in there. I'm the only photographer. At the venue, shooting the first show of Jesus and the Mary Chain in the States. What's going? Why what? There you what are. <laughs> I have tons of questions. What? <laughs> this beds on the front cover of Melody Maker and Enemy, and why? Why am I the only photographer? Wait, why is not the house photographer of the Metro here? What, what? It was a late show too. Like typical of the Metro back then. Outside of there was no, you know, smoking. Everyone smokes. It's a cloud of smoke. We you leave, you leave covered from head to toe in smoke. And the other thing was these shows would start at 11 o'clock and they ended at two on a weekday, <laughs> <laughs> two in the morning. <laughs> so, OK, I'm in there and I may I photograph the band from beginning to end. And this, the 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 shots look great. I submit them to what I think are some publications. They don't even give me a second thought, but I know I'm on to something. So it's like every Friday, a religious thing of going to two tracks, go to the second floor, see who's on the cover, invest, investigate the publication even further. And lo and behold, over time, I'm now accumulating. Do the math. I'm doing five or six shows, Metro, Vic, similar, smaller kind of venues. of have all these cool UK bands, nothing but the UKs. There's some stuff in the States, but mostly UK. The list is huge, even after three or four years of doing this suddenly publications are getting an idea that this is the guy in the in the US to use as far as these underground bands that are starting to make a name for themselves. You name the genre of music, I was on the front line of it. Slow Dive, Dead Can Dance, I was working with four AD mm-hmm. records back then, as far as just because of the accumulation and uh, Bobby was always there. Bobby was at every show, whatever. So um, where were the,
2: were the images showing up in publications at this point? Yes.
4: Alternative press out of Cleveland was one. And then, uh, these two girls that ran B side magazine out of New Jersey. And then that's when, from that, a uh, God, this is Sandy Garcia and Sandy Davis, uh, partners in both the pursuit of a publication and personal, uh, they were close to they. They record labels would call them as far as unique images that they wouldn't have on stock. And they would mention me as far as this guy in Chicago. He, If I don't have it, he's got it. And that's when Bob Guccione, who had Penthouse Magazine at the time, his son was running Spin Magazine mm-hmm. and he got word. And the next thing I know, I'm in Spin Magazine with all this kind of stuff, mostly though, the industrial stuff. Because those was also dark. These are dark and sinister bands, believe it or not. But they have a, this imagery that are really just appealing to them. And that would be the early Thrill Kill cult, the early ministry, revolting Seed the whole works, you know, and then Front 242 from Belgium, et cetera, et cetera. And they would need them. And Bobby would be the one who would have them in the States. So that's how, Larry, I'm sorry for the long answer, but technically that's it. It was just light bulbs going off courtesy of Wax Tracks Records on the second floor of the, you know, the boutique.
0: Well, that's Just, exactly what we want. We wanted to hear your story, you know, and the people don't want to hear Esther and my story. And that's yeah. why we want to have you here to talk about that and evolution. Just going back a little bit, what was your fir- that first camera that you shot with? A
4: Pentax, believe it or not. A little K100 or K1000? Honeywell Pentax. It was a a single lens reflex, which I knew Neil had because he could do interchangeable lenses. So I needed something that can handle a little bit longer if I'm further back or something that was at the front of the stage. And they were Zoom related, anything that would adapt to that. But they were cheaper than the Nikon. The Nikon stuff is, I obviously I pivoted to that when the money started flowing in in regards to what I was making with the photography. And I wanted to follow in Neil's footsteps with the meticulous nature of the gear equal to the band you're photographing. So I've been a Nikon guy ever since, courtesy of Neil Preston. So,
0: well, uh, yeah, and just so you know, I'm a cannon shooter, but we'll, we'll... I'm
4: Nikon. And, you know what? I have no problem with that because, mm-hmm. again, there are these are Japanese top of the line cameras and if neil was a canon guy i would be a canon guy yeah you know it's kind of what we kind of what you start time. with too
0: it's like what you start with i mean that's part of the part of the deal and uh, and everything and the one thing i always tell them we'll get on with your story uh is that where canon jumped ahead for a while at least was when they developed they, they took olympus's CMOS sensor which they couldn't make and they developed the digiprocessor and they really made that work and of course then all the rest of the cameras went to that. Of course, everyone needs to look out for Sony because Sony is a big company and they have lots of money. So,
4: mm-hmm. Big budget and making it easier for the photographer not to worry about what kind of mechanical issues you have. You can right. just focus on composition and shooting. Exactly. Although I'm old school, always manual. I do not trust lighting with any camera top of the line or not. Everything right. I see indoor or outdoor, it's done by me by hand and adapting accordingly. I do not do anything as far as automatic
0: yeah, I don't use auto, but I do use program to start. And I, like, you know, now in the digital age where you can shoot a heck of a lot, I, I, I take the camera's first look and then I, I'll dial it in. You know, and it's like, okay, this is what you think. Now let me see what I think, and uh, because I, I found the Canon. Program mode is really and it's flexible too. He's okay. I can dial this up, dial. It. But then eventually, then when I really, especially certain shots where you know you're within the ballpark. Yeah, I get that. So let's continue with your story from where you were at. You uh, were doing these industrial and everything like that. So, what was your next move?
4: Just keep finding a day job that can that I can handle while living not with my mom. Now I'm in Rogers Park, living with some other guys and. Being able to afford the rent and do what I'm doing and yet not conflict with the night activity. And I ended up finding from word of mouth about this cool job that's seasonal. But if you're good, they'll put you in for catering. It was at the Art Institute and the garden restaurant, the outdoor garden restaurant in the center of the, of, the, of the facility. And I did have a background kind of in service. And so that's how I got in on that. And it's an, it was, it was exclusive. They were very finicky on who to hire for that because it's not only is it very busy depending on the exhibition going on there, but you know, they want, these are, uh, these are patrons of the art Institute. You better, <laughs> you, you don't ever you, look if your arms chopped off, you better still show up kind of vibe. <laughs> you know? We'll patch you up. We need you. So that, but it was cool because it'd be between 10 o'clock and two o'clock technically. Enough time to sleep from the night before and enough time to still shoot bands that are going on at, at midnight, depending on the venue. That went on for years. And the accumulation of this kept building up. I was emulating photographers, though. In other words, you know, for composition, it's not all just Neil Preston because, again, he uses a flash, which now I'm finding out you can't really use at a show, that bands don't like it. But there was two guys uh, that are still up there with Neil Preston that I consider to be at top echelon cool photographers, even though they repose. Uh, that would be um, Anton Corbijn, He's a Dutch photographer who's also the main photographer for U2 and Depeche Mode, amongst many other bands. And the other guy was Tom Sheehan, who was actually the portrait photographer for NME and Moneymaker. All these guys, all three of them are now my friends, by the way. But see, the, I saw what Anton was doing with the dark black and white, real sinister, like Nick Cave. Even though he's smiling, he still looks like he can murder you in two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> he had that kind of look in him. And he always has had that. With the, he's just a dark Australian-looking guy, anyway. Very However, very cool is how he comes across. And Anton got him at the corner of an alley, like looking across the street, not into the camera. And the, you know, you have 20 million questions. Was well, is, is uh, Nick plotting his next move here? Uh, is he, is he waiting to jilt the girlfriend? Is he waiting to kill the boyfriend, other girlfriend? Uh, what you know? He can't really. It's just. The, it's a magnetic photo. And then stuff of David Bowie that he would do with the, with the transgender kind of thing. He was like on the, one of the first guys to actually flip the script on that with, with, with David and fashion and making it look believable that you could do what you want. He would, and again, these images are transfixing. And, but the, it was the way that they were composed with the dark, no gray. It's either black or white. And I kept thinking, how can I, how can I convey this in my in, in live photography, even though I don't have control over said artist? And that's been my pursuit to this day when I go into a show. I'm thinking of that. I'm thinking about how, do I, how this band that you totally dig, how can I convey this so that these pictures are going to be eye-popping in black and white and also in color, for that matter?
0: You're listening to Art on the Air with our guest, Bobby Talamine on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and on WVLP 103.1 FM. You
2: so Bobby, you know, Bobby, you know um, OK, so you've had now decades of experience. Mm-hmm. And so when you go into a lot of these venues, you've been there before. But what is it like to go into a venue for the first time without any preparation necessarily? Because you talked about that Metro. OK, I just showed up at Metro um and so what were those beginning what do i do where you know how do i get the shot what was that
4: well you got to take it you got it's a good question you got to take a deep breath and you're not going to you're not going to act nutty you're going to act like you belong and you're going to observe it's a small stage back in the day when metro did when i was working there almost from the inception of the metro there was no barricade it was the band the audience was up to the stage what are, the best point, what are the best spots to, besides showing up early and claiming your little piece of real estate, what are the best vantage points? This takes years to figure out, by the way. Right. So it's trial and error. In other words, you know, I, would, I guess another answer to that question, I would go in with 10 rolls of 36 exposures for the entire show. And at the beginning when I was shooting, I would say I would be lucky if I walked out from those 10 rolls with 36 solid images out of the 10 rolls if I'm lucky.
2: Well here you say you know you do Ratio's have that little not piece of
4: Esther. I'm getting. Right.
2: You. Well you know you said you had this little piece of real estate and so you don't know what the band is going to be doing from right. second to second. And it's totally no unpredictable.
4: This is before the internet. So mm-hmm. it's like there really isn't it, it, I guess the only way I could figure out band choreography was MTV's 120 minutes which was a show that aired on Sunday nights that was all the independent stuff. It wasn't stuff that was on the Daily Reels. It wasn't the uh, Belle, Biv, DeVos into, into the Madonnas, into the Bruce Spring season, into Prince. It was more of the dark stuff that I was photographing anyway. And that was the only time they would put them on is between 10 o'clock and midnight on Sunday nights. And then I would see a band, whether it be a video or live performance, and I would see how they technically lay themselves out. And then I would f- make sure that when I'm at the show, I'm going to get the angle that I want just by seeing that one short clip of the video. So that would be part of it. But it's just trial and error in learning and learning and learning and making. I think mistakes are good, though. That's how, how I got my start was just it was a, be a constant beat down. And some shows are physical. It's like, again, shooting a, ministry, shooting a ministry show was not for the faint of heart. It's beyond metal. I mean, from the first song, these are fans that are rabid body surfing right. dozens of them. And I'm getting kicked around, and there's also a mosh pit to deal with. And security is liking it because the energy is so high. In other words, so they wouldn't kick people out of the venue if you landed on stage, they just toss you back, you know. But again, <laughs> you, how you can't shoot at the front of the stage when you're getting pummeled from the back and from the front, you have to do from the sides. So and again, but how do you get? How do you capture that kind of act? There's so much. Again, every band's different, but those bands just made chaos front and center and how do i photograph the chaos and make it look like it's inviting in a photo even though i'm coming out of there i have a scratched back uh i'm dinged in my head by some kind of concussive doc martin boot and my shirt's been whipped <laughs> to 10 different pieces and i'm coming out there like i won the war kind of you know henry rollins is another one that would incite that back holy cow and, and see this is medusas at the corner this is again there's it's a conglomerate of cool venues within walking distance of each other. You had Metro to the north, and then occasionally you had the Riviera up in Uptown and um, uh, uh, the Aragon Ballroom to the east of it. And then to the south, you had Medusas, which Medusas, would be yeah. oh, the Wax Tracks Haven, because that's where the bands would get their start on that second floor. And then south of there on Sheffield is the Vic. Boom, 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 boom. And sometimes you could hit these shows on the same night because there's curfews. The Med- Medusas didn't have a curfew till 3 a.m., though. And then the Metro was 2 a.m. back then for weekday shows. But the Aragon would close up at 10. So you could hit two or three. <laughs> I'm hitting all of these. But again, these bands are all uniquely different. The genre of music is uniquely different. And you just, it's a trial and error and you learn and you, you make, I think mistakes are good, like I said, and then you, and you're not going to make that mistake the second time when you see that band or you go to that venue, you're going to, you figured it out. And maybe these shots may be crap. But they're not going to be crap the next time you go into the venue.
2: This is an odd question. Um, Do you ever get lost, so lost in the music you kind of forget that you're there to photograph?
4: It's it's very rare, but it has happened where some of the music has moved me to the point of tears and you just got to stop and. If you're lucky you're again it doesn't happen often i'm not jaded like i was back i've I've met everybody i photographed everybody so i'm still not starstruck but yeah i mean paul mccartney in particular stopped me in my tracks uh where was that it was uh it's moline india what it's a fort wayne indiana got it that's there's a coliseum there where he played who would have thought and uh, he was singing "Blackbird," and I've heard him do that like a dozen times. But this time, it just caught. At the end of the song, he's like, you can see he's just an emotional mess. He's got the acoustic guitar upside down. He's walking off the stage, and he—it's like you know—he's probably sung that song what sixteen hundred times at least. What's touching Paul this time? Is it something about the current state of the affairs equal to the "Blackbird"? The, you know, that's a uh, protest song catered to back when uh, Martin Luther King right. and the riots. Right. So you look at all that and here's a guy who's, you know, total professional and wow. And, you know, you for a guy of his caliber to still get that touched, heavy duty, heavy duty, Neil Young, same thing. He's just, he's got that tone about him where he's so yeah, he's, honest and sincere and, just, exquisitely just, beautiful voice yeah, yeah. It punch you in the gut when you hear that yeah. you know anything mother nature out of his mouth so yeah but typically no not anymore not to the extent that but yeah music still moves me to the point of tears depending on the artist current too you know it just depends bobby yeah. is,
0: is there someone that you have not photographed that you would like to photograph a band uh, individual vocalist or anything
4: yeah, Sly and the Family Stone always comes to the top of them. Uh, he was going to be here in Chicago 10 years ago and made the – when that announcement came out that was a one-off show at the Vic Theater, I I covered all my bases that that had to be done. That guy is so cool, way ahead of the curve from back in the day, way ahead of the curve. That's the epitome of of dance is that guy. And those albums that came out from like the late 60s to early 70s, untouchable as far as that. And that's why Stevie Wonder pivoted to that kind. Miles Davis, all those guys are like, who is this guy from the West Coast? That's nutty awesome. But, you know, every time he, he's, he's obviously got mental issues and he's obviously got some chemical problems. He's got to figure out that he still hasn't. And he got as far as St. Louis before he had to find a, a meth dealer. And he ended up finding one in St. Louis about six hours before the show and ended up in a blackout and couldn't make it to the show, mm-hmm. but yeah, Sly and the Family Stone uh, would be the, probably at the top of the list. I think otherwise I photographed everybody from my era forward. I mean, Jimi Hendrix back in the day, sure. That would have been cool, you know, or Procol Harum back in their prime. I totally adored that band. And if, if they were f- with Robin Trower, their original guitarist, I would stop it uh, stop at nothing to shoot that the beauty of their music. Again, music that's very emotional, in my opinion, is them, and uh, how they perceive their cabaret slash. It's hard to describe that band in their unique nature, especially the album "Salty Dog" and whatever. I mean, she, here I'll give you a story about that. That really, again, there's a lot of bands that I wish I could have. But back in the day, you know, Cher was Cher of all people was asked in an interview in Rolling Stone magazine, "What's her favorite band and what moves you to tears?" And she goes, "Oh my God, it's Brooklyn." Here. Their first song, she goes right from the intro from the from the uh, Hammond B3 organ. I I'm mean, I'm, I'm just a puddle <laughs> until the song. Play. And that was so cool hearing Cher say that about a band that I totally adore. You know, who would have thought that she's a huge fan of Procol Harem, too, you know. But, but yeah, Sly and the Family Stone would be at the top of the list as far as I wish I could have had the chance. He's such a cool dude.
0: You know, outside the uh, genre of rock, is there bands that you've done like jazz or more pop oriented? Oh, yeah. well, tell All us about some of those.
4: Of I grew up with jazz music, so <sighs> yes, I'm more of the fusion kind of guy. So you know, John McLaughlin, the Mahavishnu Orchestra being at the the pinnacle for me of beauty with progressive, harsh but intricate songwriting, and Chick of course. And Including the trio stuff. I'm really into that. So McCoy Tyner has always been like, Oh my god, this guy on piano. Holy cow. On Un- Herbie Hancock too, for that matter. Um, and then Bill Evans, I would have, you know, back in the day, so again, all that kind of music, Moose Meat is in pop too, yes. I would have killed to have shot Frank Sinatra, but by the time I made my inroads to get to him, he was already not in bad and ill health. Right. But uh Yes, as far as the crooners, oh, I love that kind of stuff too. If it's if it's, cla- if it's class, if it's done in class, no matter the genre of music, and, if, and uh, I've heard your stuff. And if I'm a fan, we're that's half of it, in my opinion, as far as photography. But all kinds of music, I don't, I don't discriminate, including rap yeah. and hip hop and EDM in particular, electronic dance music, which I totally adore. Depending on the artist, you know, all of it. If it's good and it's got, if it's got a beat and it's resonating with me, I'm going to make inquiries, you know, but yes, jazz is like, to me, like again, Joe Siegel's jazz showcase I've done a ton of work with him before he passed away over there back when he was actually at the Blackstone on Michigan Avenue. And then he went further South into pill, not South loop into Printer's row, I believe. But yeah, cause he would get all the cool, cool cats would come in and do, and, and do three or four sets during a during weekend. Did, did you that. shoot
0: at some of the smaller, well, I mean, Happy Medium, I'm thinking on Rush Street, but like Ratzos and Orphans and some of those, uh, like an Old Town area? Did you ever go I shoot? I
4: wish. No, I didn't back then because I was too busy with most of the indie stuff coming out of the UK. I didn't have time for that, but I would Occasionally go to the Green Mill, depending on the act. Patricia Barber in particular, Nicholas Payton, uh, even Paul Wirticle before he was with with, uh, Pat Metheny. He would be having a quartet there and would hang out and hear some cool stuff that was Chicago related. But Greenville would probably be it. I didn't. I was familiar with the with those smaller clubs you mentioned, but I never did get a chance to go to them. Yeah. Ratso is always word of mouth was told to me to be a cool place to hang out.
0: It was. I used to go there all the time, uh, see artists, and uh, one. My, I'll tell you a quick story. oil uh, Fava Hines was there, and uh, I don't know if you've been to Ratso. It's actually like two storefronts together, you went into the one where the bar was. But anyway, he started out with his band, and you sat fairly close. I mean, they were very intimate. Anyway, all of a sudden, this female vocal voice comes out of nowhere. She comes walking in, this is in the 70s, with a wireless mic, which was almost unheard of in the 70s, in the mid-70s, and and it was just awesome. But you could sometimes sit, like, literally on the, next to the stage, you know, you're a little seated. So, yeah, Ratso's was one of my favorite venues. Well, you had something jumping ahead to the La that happened, and uh, not a happy thing, and I know as a photographer it'd break my heart, but tell us about that.
4: <laughs> oh, the assault?
0: Yeah, the assault <laughs> and the theft.
4: <clears throat> that was... Uh... Before the pandemic, and that was when Radiohead was headlining uh, the main stage. On This is when it became a four-day event. And this was the Friday night, I believe, that Radiohead was. Uh, and I've been friends with that band from the inception. When they started, they played with at JBTV, which is, I'm the chief photographer for JBTV. And uh, they played at the Metro, and that's how we became friends, uh, Me, particularly with Johnny Greenwood, the guitar player and. the, Tom York, the guitarist. And I got invited to be on stage, believe it or not, uh, to photograph that night uh, looking out to the gorgeous skyline of Chicago. And Johnny would look my way and say, isn't this the coolest thing? I'm going, you have no idea.
0: (laughs) You're listening to Art on the Air with our guest Bobby Talamine on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and on WVLP 103.1 FM.
4: But I kept getting texts. The thing about Lollapalooza, it's multiple acts going on simultaneously because it's, it's, eight, it's eight stages and some of them are overlapping. And there was this cool up and coming band from Sweden, uh, Ghost, and they're dark, satanic-ish, although it's more of a comic <laughs> thing than it is actual ritual belief. But they, they, the whole purpose of that is to scare. I kept saying, no, with the text, I'm sorry, I'm, on, I'm here with Radiohead. No, and they kept, upping the, they kept upping the price, Bobby, and they kept lowering the time frame. Bobby, you can make it up here. We'll take care of you, and we'll triple your fee. We love your work. We want, you know, please, for two or three songs, just come up and see us. So, all right, I did. But how do you, at 9.30, quarter to 10, after a day of drinking with everybody, times 100,000? <laughs> <laughs> get from the southern stage at Roosevelt up to Jackson by the Art Institute where they were playing. It was at the time called the Pepsi stage, I think. And I was acting like a dummy. I had my camera up like I was Moses parting the sea of people to get down Columbus to the stage. And I got within like 65 yards of the Pepsi stage. And that's when I got pummeled. It, it That hit from behind it leveled me. It was like Brian Erlocker tackling me before I got to the touchdown before the end zone. And the guy kept beating him in in the head. And where he was doing this was strategic. Uh, It was the entrance and exit off of that stage was to the north. And it was through the trees that are there off of Jackson. It's really hard to describe, but also it's at night and there's no one really there. So it's the perfect opportune time for him to hit me in the head and ask for my camera, which I did. I gave it to him. But meanwhile, as I got my composure and my bell, my head was it was ringing from all the hits. <laughs> and I saw him. I saw him, and I started. He wasn't running, but he was walking at a fast pace, like cutting through the crowd. And I was getting close. He, I think, he sensed something. Like he had eyes in the back of his head, because within. Oh, I think it was by Buckingham Fountain is where he saw he turned around and then he found this extra gear and he started jumping over fences. And then I was like, you know what? This is just like, not even worth it. But the PTSD. After that is what really just took me a long time to get that figured out in my head through through psychological help because it was that bad um, that I, my, my, I had dreams in the, middle of the night where I would run into him. And I wouldn't ask for the camera. Just hand me the memory card, dude. You're, those pictures in that right. in that <laughs> camera are not worth a cent for you. They are for me. I don't care about your gear. Are you keeping my gear? I want my Radiohead photos. And I was I want thinking that. Now. Yes. <laughs> oh but my this gosh. is a dream I'm having. And the other dreams I have is I'm equal to Brian Urlacher. I forget the guy who was with the Baltimore Ravens at the time that was up there in, in scare as a middle linebacker. Ray I forget, I forget the guy's name, Ray, Ray something. And I am now doing the damage because I'm, I'm a physical guy. And I can take a beating, <laughs> but still, I'm the guy now who catches up to him. And I, I am pummeling the crap out of this guy. And I'm getting my camera back. But these are dreams that are not helping or solving anything. So that's when I sought out psychological help. The story gets more bizarre than that, but I'd rather not ridicule Lala because they've been very good to me since that whole incident. Uh, but the Chicago Police Department were a piece of work as far as dealing with that and how they handled my uh, uh, my, uh, my, uh, my case, my criminal case. But needless to say, you know, I'm now more protective of my gear. I, I should have said in my gut, I, I, the other dream I have is I, I, re, I reply to, to the band Ghost. no. You'll just, I, can, I can recommend two other photographers for you to use, but I'm stuck here at Radiohead and Radiohead's the priority. I wish I would have done that, which is what I should have. My, my gut was saying that when I was getting all those texts. I mean, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity on the stage, the main stage photographing one of your favorite bands and you're pivoting the ghost <laughs> because of money. <laughs> are you kidding? I, <laughs> I still think of that often, you know, whatever. But again, Lala, Perry Farrell and his wife, Eddie, in particular are, are the coolest. You know, they made a beeline to me on Saturday the day after the assault when I showed up with a friend's gear and, yeah, Perry wanted to make sure this was not anything he was pre-written or whatever. He's just a cool, laid-back kind of guy who runs Lala, and he just wanted to make it known that I, Bobby, you know, we totally adore and Eddie too. She was more emotional than me as far as hearing about the whole incident the day after. But you know, there we're sitting alone in the in the in the press tent area behind the stage, and I didn't even get a word. And they were just reassuring me that you know, Bobby, you're like family to Lala. Da, da da da. So that was cool. That more than made up for any goofiness from the Chicago Police Department in handling it. But still, that's I think the synopsis of the story. You know, <laughs> I still showed up those two days, even though I had a concussion. I, I, was, know. There. I was there Saturday and, and Sunday. You know, the bands take priority over Bob's physical, Bobby's physical ailments. From well,
2: a, no, it's called being in shock, Bobby. I mean,
4: but that's the only time something like that has happened, as far as shows. You
0: know? Do Do you ever do any like uh? studio type portrait work with any of the bands or things or, you know, more pose yes. things. Okay.
4: JBTV in our studio, a band, there was a protocol as far as how they would handle their live in their live performances. And I would get my opportunity, uh, right after sound check of, uh, like even BTS, believe it or not. Their first time in the States was at JBTV in Chicago. We spent three days with them and I did a ton of pose sessions with the band before they became huge. But yes, Name the band, I've probably done some post-photography through JBTV.
0: Any of those become album covers or album backs? or?
4: Yeah, of- I like The Alarm, a cool band back in the day. They've they used my stuff. A band called Mew, M-E-W, who's a Dutch that has a very progressive but you know indie kind of sound to them. Uh, Nina Nesbitt, who's a cool singer-songwriter. Banks uh, from the West Coast, another Bjork slash Kate Bush kind of singer-songwriter, and she used my images for some of them. Yes, it just depends on the band and the nature of the pose session, what they think they could use it for.
2: You know, you write so beautifully, Bobby. Have you thought of doing your own book with your thoughts and
4: photos? Yes, I've been inundated with that, actually. I get asked that question at least once every other day from people, especially now since Paul Natkin, who was my rival when I started, Again, he's a great photographer from Chicago, and his book is coming out September 21st. And when he made the announcement on Facebook about that, I was in the in his feed was, well, if Paul can do it, Bobby can do it. (laughs) I was seeing a lot of that, you know, and it's also the Metro's 40th anniversary, believe it or not, during this year. Wow. I was there when it
2: first opened, dancing. (laughs) That's crazy. And Gene Ambo,
4: who's a metal kind of guy, photographer, just put out a book of Metro, just Metro stuff. But again, in the feed, well, if Gene can do it, Bobby can do it. I mean, Bobby, what's (laughs) up with you? Why are you hiding all this cool stuff? You know, you can tell by the people in Chicago kind of text. Bobby, why why can't you get your act together and take some of that film in your vault in your basement and make a book? We're dying to see it.
2: (laughs) Right, right. And plus, you do write beautifully. So,
0: well, Bobby, tell us about the real briefly uh, your transition from film photography, chemical based photography to digital. Was that something you liked uh, doing? I mean, versus the two working in a dark room as opposed to working in Photoshop?
4: No, I didn't like it. Okay. (laughs) I didn't like how tech was taking over. Because, again, I, my guys were film guys. Neil Preston, Anton Kurmbian, and Tom Sheehan were film guys. I wasn't about, I was going to I'm coming into shows, and I still got film, and all the photographers in Chicago have converted to digital. I'm the only guy left, the old school dude, who still is doing that. But then I realized that I was running into a, again, slow learner, Larry. Sorry about that. <laughs> slow learner. But my images were now considered secondary because of the, quick nature of the internet and converting images without having to do what you said with a dark room like how do you do this if they if a publisher wants or an editor needs photos pronto and you're going to go to gamma the following day with 10 rolls of film and then get proof sheets that you're looking at a three or four day turnover at the even when it's rushed and is it worth that when actually digital can be done in six hours with editing so I kept this, this conversation in my head went on for like half, like half a year figuring out. Finally, I pivoted and did go to digital. Although I like it now I'm getting more comfortable with it and the beauty of it, but it's still, you know, I don't have my film cameras anymore, but the, the I do when I see monochrome and black and white and converting, it's just not, it's just not the same, man. Like the David Bowie here behind me uh, which one of my favorite prints I've done enlarged. you know, this is the Earthling tour, by the way, back in, I think, 97, somewhere around there, 98. But uh, that's film, and it's unique. I've tried replicating that, even with the image from, from film to convert it to digital, and it's not the same. It's still to this day, even with the, the fast pace of Photoshop and uh, Lightroom converting every other year to new software, I still cannot match it at all to tone and quality which tells me something, you know, again, not everything has to be black and white, but I need it for my business, but still I miss the film.
0: Yeah. Well, film is a little more forgiving too, as far as like, once you blow out uh, digital, it's gone forever, where sometimes you can recover something in that white area with the Mm -hmm. thing. And then you're right, the tonality, and you know, each one of those uh, black and white films had uh, a personality to them. So it was really interesting.
4: Thanks for saying I'm glad you're on the same page as me with that. But I, I do
0: love my digital. I mean, now I spend hours in Photoshop, you know, doing things and stuff. But I know that there, there are things you miss about the good old chemical photography. Well, you know, we're about. Yeah. And,
4: and Just one last thing. As far as editing, that's the beauty of it. Oh, my God. If I can I can knock out clutter from a show depending on how, the, uh, how much instruments are blocking views and stuff uh, within seconds. Unlike I can't do that with with film. You know, there are there are many more positives to digital today than there were back in the day.
0: Well, we're about ready to wrap up after this great conversation, Bobby. So we wanted you to have a chance to tell us how people can find you on Internet, Facebook, social media, wherever, and maybe some of your quick projects coming up in the next 30 seconds here or so.
4: Sure. Uh, I would say first and foremost, uh, just Google my name. Bobby Tolman full or Bobby when you get to Bobby T usually my name would come up but b-o-b-b-y-t-a-l-a-m-i-n-e and then you'll see everything however you know I'm big on Instagram so it'd be my first initial b and then my full name after t-a-l-a-m-i-n-e Facebook too I'm all over that just just by putting in my name or if you just google my name it would come up with the uh, website and the blog but the blog is what's key and then if you put in JBTV and then Bobby and that's where you'll see the whole catalog of what I've been doing, both within the studio at JBTV and bands I've photographed like the past 15 years, basically are on that archive. But well, those we- would be it.
0: We appreciate you coming on Art in the Air. It's been a wonderful conversation. I know our audience will love it. And as a photographer, I, I love it. I went to your website and everything, which there will be a link on our website to those places. So, uh, Bobby Talman thank you so much for coming on Art in the Air, sharing your wealth of experience and uh, great stories.
2: Thank yeah, you. Fantastic, Bobby. Thank you so much. Thank you, too,
4: Esther. It's been a pleasure, both of you.
0: We'd like to thank our guests this week on Art on the Air, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org, and every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicradio.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Radio. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio, and Greg Kovach, WVLP's Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. We would like to thank our current supporters and underwriters, which include regional art patron Mary LeVan and Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art on the Air, we rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art on the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. If you're interested in being a guest or sending us information about your arts, arts related event or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's a o-t-a atbreckbr.com or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air.
2: Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week.
1: Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Mary. Art on the air today. Stay in the know. And show the world your heart. Express yourself, you are. And show the world.